Hey there, friends of Holy Shenanigans Podcast. I'm thrilled to share that I'll be recording live from the Wild Goose Festival this July 11 through 14. Wild Goose Festival is a transformational community grounded in faith-inspired social justice. It's a one-of-a-kind gathering that brings together activists, artists, and seekers from all walks of life to explore justice and art, spirituality, and community. The festival will take place at Van Hoy Farms in Union Grove, North Carolina, and I'd love for you to join me there. From engaging workshops to inspired panels and interactive experiences, Wild Goose has something for everyone. So mark your calendars and let's be part of this incredible community that is committed to making a positive impact in the world. For more information, visit www. WildGooseFestival.org. As one of my followers, use a discount code A-TLE24. That's A-TLE24. And you'll get $50 off the price of an adult weekend ticket. We will see you there at the Wild Goose Festival to connect, to build community, and to work for social justice. creative, a feminist, and a pastor. In this episode, I tell a story of how football led me on a search for the whole story of John 3, 16 and 17, and how a visit to a monastery gave me some essential tools to seek peace. When I was a kid, I remember watching a football game on TV, probably with my dad, and in the stands was a fan dressed in their team's colors including face paint and a sign in hand. While it was probably a Pittsburgh Steelers game, the fan was not holding a sign cheering on the Steelers. The sign said, John 3, 16. As a child who went to church, I was familiar with this kind of reference, name of the book of the Bible, followed by the chapter of the book, and finally, the verse. So, the book of the Bible, John, chapter 3, verse 16. I was precocious, so I went and found a Bible and looked it up, chapter, book, verse, and found this well-known text. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. Is this familiar to you? It's on signs at sports events, billboards on highways, t-shirts, John 3.16 can be found everywhere. Which begs the question, why does John 3.16 get all the attention? The third chapter of John has a total of 36 verses. This chapter starts with a story about Nicodemus coming under the cover of night to ask Jesus some important questions about God. More on this part in a story another day. But an important point needs to be made about verse 16 of this chapter 3 of John. Verse 16, in its proclamation of God so loved the world, is a wonderful verse. 
but it is part of an important section that includes way more than verse 16. I suppose you could say that this is a theological pet peeve of mine to pluck out one verse of the Bible and use it as a standalone statement without any regard to the context of the history, the story, or the whole section of text of what happens before or after the verse. Perhaps this is a pet peeve because I was an English major before I went to seminary. The whole story is important to me. Or perhaps it's because I've seen scripture taken out of context way too many times. Either way, when it comes to John 3.16, or any scripture for that matter, it's important to look at the whole, the context, the historical realities. And please, let's refrain from cherry-picking. When studying scripture, there are lots of things to consider. Translation, who did the translating, history, and the body of work that is being studied. I don't say all this to discourage engagement or reading scripture. I say this as a reminder to myself as much as to anyone to take the time and energy needed to do the research. When I see John 3.16 plucked out of its narrative, I know that the emphasis can land solely on what a person should do to receive God's love without giving voice to verse 17. If you read these two verses together, the emphasis is on the loving and graceful action of God. God is the doer in this text, and the world is the beneficiary of God's doing. Listen to John 3:16 and 17 together and see if you hear this God doing focus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 16, God's love, God's giving. And continuing to verse 17, where God did not send the Son to condemn, God sends the Son to save, to redeem, to abide. Without the continuation into John 3:17, this text can be used to support a transactional perspective on God. I do this, and then I get this. This perspective is not one of grace, mercy, or in the true sense, saving. Also, a disclaimer here. There isn't time in the podcast to unpack all of John 3 in one episode. I've only scratched the surface of attempting to reconnect John 3:16 with 17. But this reconnection is an important point of really looking at scripture fairly. In context is a point that I want to emphasize. Cherry picking of text does not give the whole story. Cherry picking can shift or change the intended meaning of the text. And cherry picking can be dangerous. More to say on that in a moment. But if I had to condense the meaning of John 3, 16 and 17, I think it would be, God loves, gives, God does not condemn, God sends Jesus to save the world. Or as a paraphrase, God gives a gift, and the world receives it. Over the past few years, I've been doing some study about the history of racism and slavery in the United States. I have much, much more to learn about many historical realities and experiences of people of color But recently, I came across a specific example of how scripture was taken out of context, 
or in this case, edited to achieve the agenda of white supremacy, and just how dangerous and damaging the practice was and is. This resource is a new documentary series called The Black Church on PBS. In this series, I learned how the Bible was edited and changed in order to preserve the infamous institution of slavery. An article published on NPR's website titled Slave Bibles in the 1800s gives greater detail on racist-inspired cherry-picking of scripture. Anthony Schmidt says the first instance of this abridged version titled Parts of the Holy Bible, selected for the use of Negro slaves in British West India Islands, was published in 1807. About 90% of the Old Testament is missing, and 50% of the New Testament is missing. Put in another way, there are 1,189 chapters in a standard Protestant Bible, and this one contains only 232. Passages that could have prompted rebellion were removed, and verses that reinforced the institution of slavery were kept. One of the points of the exhibit at the Museum of the Bible is that time and place really shape how people encounter the Bible. Schmidt says, What I mean is that people don't look at the Bible or approach the Bible or read the Bible in a vacuum. They're shaped by their social and economic context. As people come from multiple of backgrounds, Schmidt says, how they encounter the Bible can vary from person to person and will affect them all differently. Context matters. Words matter. Indeed, they do. Even for a prayer that is recited in worship across many Christian traditions, the Lord's Prayer. This prayer, derived from Luke chapter 11, comes from a question from the disciples when they ask, how do we pray? Which brings me to a holy shenanigans story that is more about disruption than comfort. It was a time in my life where I sensed God was calling me to do or become something different but I wasn't sure how or what to do with what I was sensing. So I took a Saturday off and I went to a retreat center called The Mount located in Northwestern Pennsylvania. At this point in my life, I'd been going to The Mount for spiritual renewal and direction for a few years. I felt comfortable and loved there. In midday prayers, the sisters would sing the prayers and scripture in this beautiful call and response way. One side would sing or read a portion and the other side would respond. I sat in the sanctuary, and I heard this sung volley of the familiar words of the Lord's Prayer, and it taught me something new, or perhaps reminded me of something that should have been connected all along. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil. 
for the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. Those words, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. They were sung in such a beautiful way and probably in a different melody than I remember today, but they were sung in community in a way that I'd never heard before. And I was struck and stuck on that phrase on earth as it is in heaven. I had so often focused or cherry picked for the heavenly part of this prayer and missed the important, essential, abiding with usness of God in the on earth. At the end of this day of retreat, the sisters gave me a little prayer kit and a few extra to give away. These prayer kits were focused on praying for peace in this world that God loves. I was excited to return to work and home and share these peace kits with whomever wanted one. These little peace prayer kits and the reconnection to heaven and earth of the Lord's Prayer, they felt like I was learning something bigger about God's story. I was hearing the story of God in a new way, like the reconnection of John 3:16 with 17 and the God giving the gift to the world and the world receiving it. So I was anxious to give this gift of this prayer kit this peace kit to someone else. And it wasn't too long before I found someone I thought would like one. I told them what a beautiful retreat it had been, how peaceful it had been, and how encouraged I was, and passed them a peace kit. They looked at the kit in their hand. They scoffed at the card that said, pray for peace. They handed it back to me and said, what's the point? It's all going to burn anyway. I wanted to shout, God loves the world. God cares about what happens on the earth to people. For me, heaven and earth had been reconnected. For me, John 3, 16 and 17 had been sewn together. And I couldn't understand how someone would just want it all to burn. This praying for peace seemed to be something I could try to do to extend some healing and mending in the world around me. And to the cynical reply of the person who refused the kit, on that day I didn't really know what to tell them. Except I walked away knowing this feeling of something changing, something new, was going to happen. This place of only for heaven and not caring for earth wasn't where I could work anymore. And so I prayed, God, show me to the next thing. There's a quote from Luther that says, even if I knew that tomorrow the world was going to pieces, I would still plant my apple tree. Words matter. Context matters. This God that so loved the world, this reconnection is something that calls me to plant apple trees. A question about unpacking history in context 
And whether it be in the study of scripture or learning about history from our own countries or community, this is something that requires patience, perseverance, and hope. You may enjoy studying Bible commentaries or history books, or maybe you don't. But even if this kind of research isn't your thing, I encourage you to consider the power of words because you see, words can be used to enslave, judge, and condemn. Or words can make new connections, like peace on earth, connect us to heaven, and bring the gift of freedom for all peoples. And so the question this week to consider is this, what word of freedom, one that is connected in context and true, set you and me free? This week's poem comes from an anthology of African-American poetry called 250 Years of Struggle and Song, edited by Kevin Young. The poem titled A Prayer is by John Seaman Cotter Jr., 1895 to 1919. John was a talented playwright, journalist, and poet, born and reared in Louisville, Kentucky. He completed a collection of one-act plays and poetry during the last seven years of his life. Cotter died of tuberculosis in Louisville in 1919 at the age of 24. His poem, A Prayer. As I lie in bed, flat on my back, there passes across my ceiling an endless panorama of things, quick steps of gay-voiced children, adolescence in its wondering silences, maid and man on a moonlit summer's eve, women in the holy glow of motherhood, old men gazing silently through the twilight into the beyond. Oh God, give me words to make my dream children live. Thank you for joining me for Holy Shenanigans, for stories to surprise, encourage, redirect, and often turn life upside down, all in the name of love. You're always invited to join me on this unpredictable spiritual adventure that is always sacred, but never stuffy. Until next time, remember that words and context matter and that love is the gift we've already been given.